All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. This class, this uh, episode is going to be for my American history class, since as we really start getting into uh, what has shaped the world and where we've become as a society, we have to look back at one of the most important eras within our country and within, within our world history. And they kind of go together, and that's why it's covered in both world history and American history. And this is the rise of dictators in Europe and the impact that it's going to ultimately have on the rest of the world. So at the end of World War One, and right before the Great Depression takes place, 27 nations meet in the city of Versailles, which is a big palace and uh, used to be where French royalty lived in France. And they go, and as they are meeting for this peace agreement, only three of those 27 countries got a real say in what was going to happen. That was Britain, France, and the United States. So ultimately, the rest of the world is going to be slighted in what is theirs and what they have the, the right to take advantage of. So because of this, it leads to anger from all different types. It leads to anger in Japan. This leads to anger in Italy. This leads to anger in Germany. This leads to anger throughout. But this anger was also mixed in with the, de the desperation of the Great Depression. It was all able to mix into this group of people called totalitarians. And what a totalitarian dictator was, was that they ran every part of your life. They had total control of everything that was there to help kind of push them through and to influence their power. So these regimes are going to start the Soviet Union and Italy. And the Soviet Union, it starts with Joseph Stalin taking over after Vladimir Lenin passes away in 1924. He was a cruel, cruel individual, and he did everything he could to make sure that not only did he stay in power, but those that were against him were out of the equation completely. I'm talking murder. I'm talking... Uh, putting up new, you know, putting out slave labor, things like that, to really get people focused on, hey, let's just worry about what I'm going to do here. He actually is going to go through, and, you know, we talk about purges all the time. Many of you have asked me questions of, is there going to be a purge? Or there's going to be a purge? You know, well, the word purge actually is going to come from the Russians. And what they did is they literally purged the people out of their, out of their society and out of their country. And they used propaganda to make sure that they they had as much control as possible. That's what they actually did. But what they made you see was that everything was great and everything everybody was happy within the society. Mussolini does something similar within the Italian uh, leadership because what he did is he actually pushes, except for being communist, he's going to be what's called fascist. And he takes over because Italy was basically really mad that not only did they fall into the Great Depression like everybody else did in the world, but the veterans ran out of jobs. They didn't get any of the land that they felt they were promised, and they really were bitter about what had happened. And in 1919, a man named Benito Mussolini is going to really push this fascist idea. And in 1922, uh, Victor Emmanuel III asked Mussolini to form a government, and that's actually going to ultimately lead to his control for the next 20 years in that country. So then we're going to focus now on Germany and Japan. Let's start with Germany. Uh, Germany has obviously a very big part of World War II. They are the, the enemy. They are what everybody looks at when they think of what is wrong with society or anything of that nature. They are 
all of those things. So let's look at the emergence of the of the Nazis. So in the early 1930s, uh, obviously the Great Depression's hitting everywhere. It's also hitting Germany extremely hard. And because of that, these anti-democratic parties that were cons extremely conservative, excluding the Nazi party, including the German Workers' Party, including a lot of these other groups, they are going to gain a lot of momentum. Momentum, excuse me. Nazis were not socialists. They were against socialism. They were against communism. And any other idea that promoted class uh, kind of interest or workers' rights above German ethnic solidarity. Basically, the idea was we are German. We need to keep Germany, Germany, and forget everybody else and, and not rule about this. And in times of death, but they also promised this rebuild of the economy. So as you're promising this rebuild of the economy, you know, they're going to sit there and when you're desperate, you're willing to do desperate things or you're willing to ignore certain things that meant you had a job. So if you were German and you got a job because of the military or because of the government, you kind of ignored what they were doing somewhere else. And that's what led to a big, big portion of who they became. They were violently anti-Semitic, meaning they really did not like Jewish people. But as the economy continues to be shattered. More and more people fall in line to this idea. And in 1933, the president of the Weimar Republic actually appoints Hitler as the chancellor, meaning he was going to be in charge, basically, of their legislative branch. What he then do, did, excuse me, not do, that didn't make sense, but what he then did was Hitler pushed together to become president, as well as Chancellor, consolidating both the executive and the legislative branch. He was unchecked by the parliament because of this. And by 1935, he had basically dissolved all of the democratic institutions. They were silenced. Hitler spoke alone. He was the voice of Germany. And he was now in charge of all this. But here's the part that Hitler did that allowed him to keep what he did without a ton of fight is that in the 1930s, the economic policies, uh, all, all the stuff that came around uh, the Treaty of Versailles, he starts ignoring. Massive public work policies. All these stuff, and the German economy starts to turn around. And as it starts to turn around, people start to support him more and more and more. Militarism in Japan then is going to grow. So Japan was still kind of emerging as its own country, emerging as its own uh, power, I guess would be the, the best way of putting it. Because up until the 1880s, they were very quiet to the rest of the world. They had no interest in what the rest of the world was going to be doing and how they were going to take things on. So they start really focusing on building up their military and using that military for other power. And they're going to expand their, expand their empire by invading places like Manchuria. And when the League of Nations condemns them, they're like, all right, see ya, we don't want to be a part of this. And they weren't the only ones. So Japan grows this militaristic power and they're really pushing to build through their military and everywhere else has just their own strategy or their own idea as to how they are going to advance within this system. 
The dictators then all move to gain, get, gain territory. Everybody pushes to gain territory. Japan invades Manchuria. Italy invades Ethiopia. Uh, again, League of Nations uh, endorses sanctions, but Italy does not enforce any of the sanctions that they are put up with. Germany sends troops in the Rhineland. They weren't supposed to do that. They denounce the move. No action. Germany and Italy support fascists in the Spanish Civil War. France, Great Britain, United States refused to get involved because they believed it was not up to them. League of Nations remains neutral. Spain falls to the fascists. Japan invades China. Japan, again, criticized for violating peace treaty, but no real action is taken. So this is the problem. We keep saying, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. And nobody's doing anything to actually really make it go down. Germany is going to then go on and annex Austria. The world powers take no action. This is a clear violation of pretty much everything that they have been fighting for, and they do nothing. And then they demand the Sudetenland. And it became this idea of appeasement that is really going to push. And it's this idea of, hey, let's let them have this now because, no, we just don't want war. So, just, like, if we do this and we avoid the war, then you know what? Everybody wins for it. Well, the problem became is you kept avoiding the war. What's going to stop them from asking for more? And nothing did. Nothing prevented the Germans from asking for more. Nothing prevented the Italians from asking for more. In fact, they were glad to do it. And as they were glad to do it, they kept pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And next thing you know, we are on the verge of World War One because we have now signed an agreement that basically said this is the last time you are going to do this or you are not. Now, next time when I get on here, I'm going to talk about how the United States felt about a lot of this. And what did they do as war broke out in Europe? It broke out in Europe long before it broke out anywhere else. But what did we decide that we were going to do? How was our involvement going to be within this program and within this situation? Thank you all very much for listening. I've enjoyed talking about this. I will be back on more regularly talking about what's going on in our class. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me either through the Anchor app where you can send me a voice message or just send me an email. All right, everybody, have a great rest of your day.